Have you ever needed a supportive community in your journey to advance racial equity, stop and prevent oppression, and catalyze change in your life or your organization? Join us in our online community at intentionallyact.com. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Join us online to confront the challenging questions and situations in your journey to advance racial equity as we build community to offer professional, personal, and organizational development, skills, and knowledge. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Atia Martin. Welcome to Intentionally Act Now, a podcast that supports the All Aces mission to activate consciousness, catalyze critical thinking, and transform capabilities that advance racial equity and build resilience within ourselves and our organizations. We feature a wide variety of leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, critical race theory, personal growth, and more. Hi, this is host Enrico Imanalo. Dr. S. Satia Martin invites social scientist and researcher at the RAND Corporation, Aaron Clark Ginsberg, to All Aces On Air, since renamed Intentionally Act Live, for a conversation that explores the intersection of emergency management and racial equity, two areas that hold special places in Dr. Martin's heart. In this conversation, Clark Ginsberg and Dr. Martin talk about the language of research, how depoliticization can hide ugly truths, where exactly that money earmarked for emergency management actually goes, and why normal is horrible for so many. Join us on IntentionallyAct.com to share your questions, comments, and thoughts about this episode. Today, I have the wonderful Aaron Clark Ginsburg of the Rand Corporation. So today... Um, We will be talking about emergency management, racial equity, and um, disaster risk reduction, which is a lot of stuff to cover in one hour, but we're going to do our best. Um, And so you all know that this is a very um, relational show. Our goal is always to um, bring the humanity into the space, regardless of what we're talking about at the intersection of racial equity. That said, um, what I will do is just talk a little bit about Aaron um, and then have Aaron introduce himself to you all. So first of all, I have had the pleasure of observing from a distance um, Aaron um, do amazing research around um, how can we as a society, both in America and internationally, he's done a bunch of international research too, um, to reduce the impact of disasters on real people's lives. Um, and so I have been a big fan of his work um, as a emergency management nerd myself and just a nerd in general, but emergency management in particular. Um, and so um, and I really appreciate who he is as a person. We've had several conversations over the years and he has always showed up um, with uh, full humanity and um, consideration for um other people for um, the not just the work, but really um, making sure that the that that um, compassion and empathy um, more accurately empathy is there. So I just want to say thank you, Aaron, for being you. Thank you for all the work that you do. And um, so I'm going to turn it over to you to tell folks who are watching us um, 
who are you, right? Um, I've talked about your work, but that's not who you are. So tell us about yourself, Aaron. <laughs> sure. Thanks. Thanks, Atiyah. And thanks for, thanks for having me on and the, um, the really sweet and wonderful intro. And I, I've, I've really enjoyed watching and, and, you know, re reading some of your work over the years too. So it's, it's fun. And let's, 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 nerd out a little bit today um so yeah i'm i'm a i'm a, I'm a disaster researcher by i guess training and, and and background and just you know hobbies and interests um i'm i'm i've been working on disaster related issues for i mean katrina was my first sort of foray into everything and that kind of got me my brain spinning um you know i was uh, i think a naive freshman at the time and uh in, in in college and you know saw this thing happen and you know thousands of people dead um recovery and response that took forever and is still ongoing and um mm -hmm. you know i decided i wanted to do something and um there there's a group going down with my college uh i went down with the college did some volunteering did some more volunteering, ended up staying there, you know, on and off um, for, for, for a while. And, uh, you know, that kind of got me down this path. Um, I think the thing that was really sort of motivated me and kind of continues to motivate me was just, um, you know, we would go in as, as, as this group and it was all sort of, sort of good fun college stuff, like a bunch of, a bunch of teenagers uh, hanging out, but then we would go to these houses where people were, you know, their, their entire lives were completely destroyed. Their houses were destroyed and, you know, we would go there and we would gut the house. So, um, you know, rip out stuff that had been damaged by the hurricane and try and get it up to scratch for, for, for sort of rebuilding. And, um, I mean, that was rewarding in itself, but, um, you know, I think you chat with people, uh, who were, you know, often, often the families were there or we were doing the stuff and just sort of, you know, hearing their stories of, yeah, this, this, this hurricane hit, these levees failed. Um, you know, this, the system that we, we, that we relied on, it, it wasn't working. Mm. And now we are, you know, metaphorically high water and trying to figure out how to survive. And the little support that we were providing, like this sort of fun field trip, it, it, it like meant so much to them. And it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it shouldn't mean so much to them. It should just be like, they have support, they have resources, or this thing didn't even happen. Um, mm. That's my long-winded intro to, to, to sort of the disaster space. Since then, I've, um, you know, I worked as a wildland firefighter for a while, um, then went off wait, to- Wait, 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 go back, go back. <laughs> you said a what firefighter? I was a, I was a wildland firefighter. Um, so wow. this was- you kept that one under the hat, <laughs> Yeah. Secret. Keep going. The secret. Um, another sort of summer job of, you know, interest interest in disasters. Again, this one, I really like the outdoors. I like hiking. Um, I like doing sort of sort of physical things, running, cycling, all that stuff. And this seemed like an ideal summer job where you could also make a lot of money and get some adventure. Um, so yeah, I signed up for a summer, uh, ended up, I, I don't know how well you know the wildfire world, but you know, you have state, you have feds, and you have contract crews, which are mm -hmm. private sector crews. Um, 
found a job for, for a contract crew and um, worked with them for two seasons before transitioning over uh, to work for the state of Washington for another two. And, um, you know, kind of, kind of different because in this case, instead of hanging out with the survivors of, 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 of disasters, you're hanging out in the woods with a bunch of other disaster workers trying to kind of contain this, this, this threat, this emerging threat. Um, kind of similar too, in that on the worker side, it's, you know, it's almost like a similar experience to the, to the survivor in that, you know, for me, it was a summer job. I'm, it was pocket change for me and savings for me and, you know, useful, but I was getting my degree, um, for the other workers. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're scraping by and this isn't necessarily an adventure for them. It's, it's how they're making their living and they're making very little living and, um, you know, they're exposed to a lot of hazards and, uh, you know, I think, I think they're, <laughs> they're, they're sort of part of the disaster machine and you know, feeling some of its, some of its problems, um, by being in a position of sort of labor precarity, um, mm -hmm. responding to risk. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was diff really different experience, but, um, and different populations, but like, you know, that narrative was still still there for that um so yeah thank you for sharing that because um i'm learning stuff about you <laughs> and um one of the things i wanted to um highlight is that um you do work for the rand corporation and your all of your um thoughts today are coming from aaron clark gamesburg yeah. right and so these are the opinions of Aaron, not of the Rand Corporation. However, um, for those who don't know um, the Rand Corporation and what it is and why it's such a big deal, um, can you just give a little bit of context on on that? And then we can talk a little bit about some of the work that you have done over the years. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I'm a I'm a researcher at the Rand Corporation. The Rand Corporation is it's the largest. Um, Nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank uh, in 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 the U.S. Um, I work with, I, I think, over a thousand PhDs um, in all different disciplines. You know, I'm I'm this social science mutt. Um, I work with engineers, political scientists, economists, um, all all different types of pretty smart people. And um, you know, our goal is to do research that that makes that, that makes an impact and you know makes makes a difference. Um, so half of our work, and this is the stuff that I don't really do, um, half of the work is is more sort of defense oriented. So it's like a manpower study for the Air Force where you know you need to figure out how you retain Air Force employees and you know support families, something like that. Um, the other half is is you know the non-defense related work, which is what I do. Uh, this is this is very broad. you know it could be anything from, education to healthcare and mm -hmm. um, supporting a variety of clients. Um, so, you know, some of the government entities like, like FEMA, who do work um, with and for FEMA. Um, CDC, I'm, I'm doing work for CDC right now on 
incident management, actually. Um, oh, we have some things to talk about. So yeah, that and that, that, that's a three-year project that's been a little bit delayed because of um, this, this, this global pandemic we're, we're in right now. Um, yeah, and then, and then the, other, the other stuff is more of the academic research. So I'm, I'm doing some work um, that, that's funded by National Science Foundation, NSF, basic research on you know, disasters and, and community resilience type stuff. Um, so yeah, it's fun. It's it's a mix of research reports for um, government, non-governmental entities, writing journal articles for for academic community, and then I I, I write you know other smaller things like op eds and blogs and, and stuff like that, and uh, you know conduct conduct some of the research behind it too. So with all of that said. Um... You know, what are, what would you say, because you've, you've written a lot of research reports, Aaron, I, I looked, I checked. <laughs> and, and Too many. Well, you know, in a good way, it's impressive. Um, that's a lot of work. And um, one of the things that um, I was curious about is, you know, you have this, this, this breadth of research you've done, and there is this, this throughput of disaster risk reduction, emergency management, you know, what is the, what is your favorite report you've worked on um, so far? Man. That's a that's a hard one. I've so I, I've 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 done work inside and outside of the U.S. and I think I have. I mean, I'm partial to my earlier stuff because it was all so much more new and exciting mm -hmm. and. You know, I was I was really thinking hard about these things and trying to figure out, you know, what what disasters are all about, what the field of disaster studies is all about. So, um, I think, I mean, I think what I'm most proud of is, as part of my PhD, I partnered up with this international NGO, Concern Worldwide, mm. and spent two years um, with them, going to ten different countries to look at concerns, basically community-based disaster risk reduction work. Um, so mm -hmm. concern would go poorest of the poor areas um, in some of the poorest countries. So you know, Niger, Afghanistan, Haiti, Kenya, Bangladesh, um, places where concern works. And you know, it would take, I, I went to these places and it's first you fly to the country and then you, know, you hang out in the capital for a day getting briefed. Then you take, you know, either a second flight or if, if flights aren't available, you know, you'll you'll hop in a four by four and drive for you know a day or so to get to the secondary office. And then by you know the third day or so, that's when you can get out and get to the field sites where these interventions are are, are taking place. So it's mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it 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 takes forever to get these places and um yeah, for for concern, I I spent you know two years working with them. Um, wrote up ten country reports of concerns work in these different countries, um, and then synthesized them into like com comparative reports of mm -hmm. you know, this this is how you do disaster risk reduction in mountain regions or in urban regions or coastal regions. Um, I mean, for me, that that work was. It's kind of eye-opening um, uh, seeing the 
real impacts of, of, of risk and disasters that communities face. And, uh, you know, I think it was, I mean, it was fascinating personally, just, just being there. Um, the reports themselves, you know, I, I, they provide something that I think the field is lacking a little bit, which is just sort of descriptive. This is kind of what it takes to reduce risk and use community-based approaches. You know, this, this is what a project looks like. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that they're there, but, uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, thinking about those, it's more of just kind of the personal journey that, um, that I'm reminded of whenever I pick them up. Which brings us to um, another good point, which is you talked, you started talking about communities and, and, and the power of kind of grassroots approaches. Um, as we, you know, all ACES focuses on confronting racism and advancing racial equity. And so um, with that lens um, of understanding how pervasive racism is, how, how it is systemic, um, how it impacts us as individuals, um, in terms of how we see ourselves, how we engage with each other, how we um, show up in organizations where we're making policies, where we're writing research and all of these pieces. Um, what have you learned through your research that helps people better understand um, the way racism is operating in disasters um, or um, the way that um, the opportunities that you see for advancing racial equity in in the work. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's a that's a really good question, and you know, I think that there's for me at least, I think of it in two two different ways. Um, mm -hmm. One of them is you know it's called the social construction of risk um, and the associated vulnerability paradigm. If we, if we want to use the jargon, um, but this this is a sort of field of disaster studies that you know I I tend to associate myself with, or I try and associate myself with, and uh, you know it basically argues that the reason there are disasters and the reason people suffer um, because of crises and disasters is are are, are things like like racism, like marginalization, um, you know, like, like vulnerability. So, um, going back to Katrina, for instance, you know, it's, 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 you know, there, there's communities in low level areas, levees break, nobody cares. Um, you know, a large, large, larger number of deaths. Um, if, if you're black, harder time recovering because you have fewer resources and it's hard, and it's more difficult to access those resources um, you know and and you're seeing this with covid right now too that's another you know here's one that we're living through where you know if 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 you're poor if you're marginalized you're often you have you have higher exposure to covid itself um, to its economic impacts um, and you know it's 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 harder if if you're hit to to recover. You know maybe you have more pre-existing conditions. Um, you have less savings. You know it's 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 all of the all of those things are the things that create the disaster. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one area, which is you know the sort of social construction of risk and why disasters disproportionately affect some segments of the population versus the other. Um, the other one that I, I've been 
trying to think a lot more on and I think this one's harder personally um, is is the field of disaster studies itself and you know my, my position within the field of disaster studies um, and I mean con the concern project is a, is a great example here of you know here's here's a guy who doesn't know about these countries per se um, who's been hired by this international NGO and you know flies and travels three days to write about something um, for this organization that then they can use for, you know, for, for, for raising funds and um, mm. spreading knowledge and, you know, good stuff. Um, at the same time, it's, you know, that that's sort of an extractive practice for those, those communities and they're, they're getting something from it. They're getting longer term support um, and they can, they can use it to kind of advocate for themselves. And if, I take it upon myself to interpret that the right way, then I can help help elevate their voices. But it's also, you know, I'm I'm sort of the intermediary. And if if mm -hmm. I misinterpret or if I think something else, then they, they don't have much power. Um, I mean the other side, you know, so and that that kind of relates to these broader issues of you know, who has power and control within this this field of practice. Um, something I've I'm no longer a PhD student. I'm now leading projects and, um, you know, first authoring a lot of papers and you know, doing those things. So, you know, that's one of the things I'm trying to do is, is in my personal work, um, try and try and change that a little bit. So there's, there's a lot of really good papers out there by, you know, young, young scholars, um, young scholars of color. And it's, it's really easy to cite, the same people that have been cited all the time, you know? Um, so I, I'm trying to, you know, trying to remember to do those, those, those sorts of, of little things, trying to structure projects in a way that, that, you know, gives, gives other people more of a say, more of control over the projects and more voices. But yeah, mm. I mean, it's, so, so it's an issue that that's both in disasters itself, but then also in how we think about disasters and who gets to talk about them. Now, what, what's interesting, um, what you said that I want to just highlight for the audience is, you know, the, the power dynamics of disaster research, right? Yeah. It, so on the one hand, um, or what the first part is um, that you're the intermediary, right? And which, which to your point, leaves space for kind of our own interpretations of the world to um, uh, filter people's experiences. Um, and one of the things we talk a lot about at All Aces and all, on All Aces on Air is voicing choice, right? That one of the major ways that oppression perpetuates itself, um, and in this case, you know, we're talking about racism, um, is people's voices not really being heard or being silenced or and or um, people not having any influence or choice in the issues that are directly impacting them, including the narrative, their own narratives. Um, and so I just wanted to explicitly state, um, explicitly call that out as something very powerful that, um, that you are seeing on the disaster side and on the research side. And I'm, I'm really interested in um, 
a conversation that we started to have earlier, which was about kind of the, the challenges with um, the fact that we have done so much research, to your point, disaster risk management. And actually, I'm going to pause here for a moment because um, to you mentioned um, people having, you know, people expecting certain folks to be cited in papers and things yeah. like that. So um, I have, you know, several things published. Y'all know I'm a nerd. Um, and one of the things I have published, I remember the when you when you publish a journal article, there are usually three on average, three people who you don't know who they are and they are reviewing your work. Um, and they're giving you feedback once you submit your paper and you're adjusting it based on their feedback. And then through their approval of how you've adjusted yourself, your things get published. And when I published my my uh, paper on um, the intersection of kind of um, resilience um, in cities and um, uh, risk reduction um, and emergency management, um, you know, the focus really was on kind of underestimated people in our society. And I remember one of the reviewers, blind reviewers, saying, "Well, you don't have. You're saying that your what you're proposing." is good for the field but you don't even talk about i won't say the researcher's name who they said that i didn't <laughs> talk about but you don't even talk about this person and their thing is the gold standard for how this works blah 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 yeah. and my response <laughs> my response was well there's a reason why i thought it was necessary to come up with this framework because um number one that approach that this um, particular researcher takes is great academically. But when it mm -hmm. comes to decisions that need to be made on the ground, when it comes to explaining this to a, 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 a an elected official um, who is making decisions in real time about how to to um, distribute resources, that that this approach that you um, that this person uses really doesn't help in those situations. It's hard to explain because yeah. of the statistical gyrations that you have to go through. And I didn't say this in my response, but, and I know for a fact, people who have taken courses with this person, that the person can't admit that, you know, there are a lot, parts of the, st the statistical gyrations that go into it, that, you know, eh, you know, and so, um, uh, and so I said, what I can do is mention, acknowledge that the research exists because that's really important um, uh, because you do want to acknowledge all those folks. Um, and uh, and um, that I'm, pro I'm providing this um, as an alternative for yeah. practitioners, right? As someone who is a practitioner. Um, and I... I uh, Amazingly, it got published. However, <laughs> yes. <laughs> however, it was a very, um, it was one of those moments of kind of truth, right? Where it, your your um, integrity is on the line. It's like, well, I could just go along with this in the yeah. way, exactly the way that they're telling me that I need to rewrite this or I need to frame this. Um, and it's it's hard as a researcher who really cares about those issues when you're bumping up against um, those kind of situations. So, and I, so I share that story um, to amplify the message around how hard it is. 
Um, and then the, the, where I wanted to go to was, um, you know, we were talking about earlier before the show was live, um, about kind of the challenges with all of this research, right? Like there's so much research and it's amazing research. And we've learned so much from, um, all that has been done. However, Aaron, what's the problem? The problem is we aren't using it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I talked about, you know, the social construction of risk and, and the vulnerability paradigm that I'm trying and try and operate in and try and work with. It's about talking about power dynamics and how power dynamics shape disasters. And yeah, we're still we're still learning stuff. Um, and, you know, there, there's always more to figure out. But this field, this area of, of thinking, you know, it started in the 1960s. We've had the basics down since the 1960s. Yet we're still at the same or, or relatively the same stage when it comes to implementing these interventions and, you know, thinking in this sort of sort sort of way so um wait you know before, before yeah. you or when you say these interventions what kind of interventions are you talking about basically justice focused interventions interventions where going back to katrina or covid um you recognize that the reason that people are dying is because they're marginalized is because they're in positions of powerlessness is because society has given them a short stick and they don't have the resources necessary to you know, implement mitigation activities um, and, and respond and recover adequately. Um, mm. That disasters are social failures that expose social inequities um, and should be treated as such. Not that you know somebody is either in the, the wrong place at the wrong time, they're mm. unlucky, um, or that they just don't care because they choose choose to live in a floodplain, right? Um, which 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 is often what people end up saying. It's it's not the case. It's that they can't afford to live anywhere else, or that they were, you know, um, they they live in a community that was that was redlined and you know redlined in high risk areas. Um, I live in Portland. Uh, Portland, you know, we we despite being constantly called a white, completely white city, uh, we we have a black population. Um, that population was historically excluded from Portland. We had, you know, night acts where you, af, af, after it got dark, you had to leave. Um, there were suburbs in, in, in Portland called Vanport that uh, a large black population, like Portland's black populations lived in. Mm -hmm. High risk area, Vanport flooded, you know, that, that, that group got wiped out and yeah, it's 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 kind of frustrating because I, I think as as a field we have been saying a lot of this stuff for a long time, um, yet disasters are still sort of naturalized as hmm. either an individual failing, you know, living in the living in the floodplain or not wearing a mask, um, or as an act of God of of oh yeah, it just kind of it kind of happens and wrong place at the wrong time. So, um, yeah, we've, I've, I don't know. I've been trying to change that narrative, but, um, <laughs> we, we, need, we need to, we need to, uh, do some collective action to 
sure that we shift this narrative because it, the way that you just framed um, how um, the ideology of disaster management um, uh, has been working, as a, uh, particularly when it comes to um, people of color poor and poor people, um, is the same thinking that happens with racism in general right it's either an individual failing why can't you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps why can't you be a superhero and like navigate all of the structural barriers that are in your way um why can't you be resilient enough um why can't you um navigate um the uh uh the the your own individual failings right? Yeah. Like there's a, a lot of that. Yeah. And, you know, um, this other piece, what was the second part you said? There's the individual. Oh, that it's it's wrong place at wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time, right? Like that yeah. bad apple. Yeah. I, I could just, you know, yeah. that's not a, it's not a pattern, right? Yeah. It's yeah. A, um, a systemic or structural issue. It's just, you know, it's just things happen and you, you know, we all struggle, right? And it, it's like this normalization of things that are um, unjust and should not be justified. Um, and so we have some folks who are who are uh, posting in the comments. Um, Amelia Tracy, thank you for joining us tonight on Facebook. Doesn't that help us unite the language we use to describe why this work is so critical? Yes, right. And the that I'm assuming that Tracy means is this intersection, the way that these parallel tracks of um, how racism and oppression work and the language and constructs that we use and kind of the social con uh, construction of risk um, that parallel those parallel worlds that currently are very separate, right? Like the disaster research, even when it is talking about racism or racial equity, is very separate from like yeah. everything else talking about social. It's talking justice. about it in a different way, yeah. Talking yeah, about it in a very different way. Yeah, in we use, we use the language of vulnerability, and um, I don't know. I, I I like that language, but it can also be misconstrued or or depoliticized, right? Um, you know, we can. There's there's research out there that talks about the relationship between vulnerability and poverty. And doesn't necessarily talk about why poverty exists, which is you know this this marginalization and and political processes that place people at risk, right? So, mm -hmm. I, th I think the or gender and right? or, or race, um, you know that that if you if you're a woman or if you're black, you're more likely to die, but doesn't get into why. And um, mm -hmm. so you know that the language of vulnerability and disasters, if it's done right, it can be quite useful. But um, it's it's very easy just to kind of brush away some of those broader problems that you're talking about with with that language. Yes, and um, it's a pattern we also see in um, in our work, both when we're dealing with um, explicitly around emergency management or um, climate mitigation or any of those things, you see a similar pattern. Yeah. You see that same pattern in um, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. Sure right it's like let's not talk about racism or let's not use explicit language let's just talk about diversity in general <laughs> and like you know things that make us feel a little more comfortable yeah. um 
So thank you for bringing that into the space. And thank you, Amelia, for that. Um, and then we also have um, a, one of our repeat viewers here who is a former colleague of mine way back in the day, um, back in my emergency management days, uh, Kevin O'Hara Shanley. Good to see you, Kevin. Um, and who is also very interested in this intersection of kind of disasters and social inequities. Um, and I think we, um, you know, as we are navigating through this, um, you know, in, in this moment that we're in right now of struggle, right, of um, disappointment, um, I think there's a lot of frustration around um, the fact that it seems like so many Americans um, have bought into ideas that are the opposite of things that are um, aligned with how complicated the real world is. Um, that and, are, and people are dying as a result as we speak, right? As we speak. Yeah. And so... Um, I'm curious from where you sit. So we, we laid out a number of challenges um, and I, I want to sit with this challenge around the disaster research, right? Like, so, so we're not doing it, but which, uh, how do we close that gap? Right. So let's talk about it. Um, I, I wanted to ask you that, how to, how to close the gap. Oh, you want me to answer. Oh, yeah, I, want, I, want you to answer. I, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I think, um, you know, part part of the challenges um, in, in, in how I always like to th think about these things is always like kind of systems. Um, and, and when we understand that a lot of what happens uh, on the ground in disasters is influenced by elected officials and the people that they have chosen to be in these emergency management roles. Mm -hmm. And the, the, so when we think about strategies, you know, policy is an important strategy. And as I mentioned to you earlier, there's the saying that um, culture will eat policy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like every time. Um, and so not to say to diminish the power of policy, but to say that um, we need multiple strategies. And so policy is important getting in, in order to, to, for policies to be most effective, has to be a narrative shift, right? There has to be a shift in our fundamental framework, worldview on um, the issue we're trying to change. And in this case, emergency management, I am, um, I'm not shocked. I am disappointed in how many people, including elected officials who are responsible closest to the folks who are gonna be making decisions, um, don't understand emergency management at all. It's almost like, and, and I'm guessing this is true, um, it's almost like um, there's no briefing, there's no, like in public policy world, there's no introduction to like, these are all the different parts of government. Because <laughs> yeah. emergency management is an important part of government. Um, so th this one piece is like this lack of understanding from local and state officials unless they've been through a lot of disasters. And even then, it depends. Um, yeah, even, even then, are they, are they actually going to do the right thing or, or, yeah. or not? Even if you have the understanding, it also takes, I don't know, some, some courage to act. Um, 
Yes. And to call out the, the inequities, right? Yeah. I mean, even if we think about COVID-19, how it took so long for folks to just admit that Black people and um, our Latinx brothers and sisters were disproportionately bearing the burden of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, even though those of us who've been doing this work for a long time could have told you that right at the beginning. Hey, this is how this is going to play out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, so there's so 60 years of research saying this is how it's going to play exactly. out. So, yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's a predictable pattern. Yeah. Um, the other piece is um, kind of the, the, the collective, when I talk about collective action, okay, so that's elected officials. But then we also have folks who are advocates closest to communities who also, um, many of them are are filling the gaps that government is leaving because of our um lack of um learning our lessons we, we do all the stuff around lessons <laughs> that we like to um learned but not implemented yeah 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 they're, they're in a lot of reports after yeah. reports, it's full of full of them um but this idea uh if they're honest like and some after action reports are very political so like that's a whole yeah. nother story for another day um and for folks who don't know, an after action report is like the official documentation of a, of a disaster or emergency that shows kind of here's what went well, based on all the things we were supposed to do, based on the standards that the federal government has set for the way we do this work. And here are the things that did not go so well. Um, and here, based on what didn't go so well, here's our timeline um, and commitment to address the gaps that we saw. And those, I mean, those can be good for improving organizational performance and response if they're if they're done appropriately. Um, I, I even take act issue. I mean, I'm I'm just kind of maybe maybe a little bit annoyed these days, or you know, a little bit depressed these days. But I mean, I, I even take issue with these AARs, these after action reviews, and that they often fail to do that deep dive into why this happened and um, you know what what placed people at risk. So it focuses on the response, not the creation of that disaster risk. And I mean there's a good reason not to do that because that's that's pointing blame and accountability at mm -hmm. a, a system or a group of people um, for you know uh, exacerbating vulnerability and creating exposure. Uh, so that's that's really challenging. Nobody wants to do that. It is, and you know, um, if we claim that we want to get better and that these are lessons learned, um, the opportunity that we have is to um, not fall into the usual human, you know, conditions of running away from mistakes. We all make mistakes. No person is perfect, no organization is perfect, no response is perfect, no recovery is perfect. And if we are committed to the people we're serving, then we are um, uh, actively seeking out these um, these lessons so that we can improve what we're doing, right? It's not a, um, if we're if we're being authentic about it, it's not an indictment on, you know, whether or not you're an awful human being, right? What it is, is um, an opportunity to see where the broken places are and fix them, 
right? Like this is, you know, and the same pattern we see with organizations. People take these things very personally instead of focusing on fixing the problems. Yeah. Um, anyone who brings up the problems, you know, um, in many cases, you become the problem instead of like the problem that we're supposed to be fixing. Um, but all of that to say, um, the 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 other opportunity that we have is to partner with um, communities who are filling in the gaps that government are leaving. Right. We know that um, there are a number of grassroots organizations who are bootstrapping themselves. Um, and just filling in gaps that government has left in Black communities, in Latinx communities, um, in communities, in, in really poor communities, um, rural communities, um, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. There are people of color who live in rural areas, just contrary to popular belief. Um, but this idea um, of how we can help them also have the knowledge and um, information that they need to... Um, partner to shift the narrative as well right because when mm-hmm. people closest to the ground understand oh wait not only am i filling a gap that the government's supposed to be doing right now um but there's actually federal money that went to the state that we don't know where it went right like you got reimbursed you you know so for folks who don't know you know when there's a disaster and the and it's federally declared like COVID-19 is a federally declared disaster there's federal money that comes with that every time it goes to the state first and the state um so usually it's a reimbursement thing so that you spend the money you get the money back What's fascinating is, um, you know, and wearing another hat, um, doing um, work, community activism, um, I've seen no accountability. Where did all the money go? What did it go <laughs> on? Like, I know folks are getting reimbursed and there are these, and there'll be these line items where they'll say, we'll reimburse you up to this much, right? So I'll give a concrete example. So in Massachusetts, you know, there was $20 million that was supposed to be allocated to, um, it was allocated to the state for them to get reimbursed on in order to address the racial inequities associated with COVID-19's impacts. It's great. It sounds great on paper, right? Like that's amazing. Where the hell did that money go? (laughs) No idea. In, in, uh, uh, one of my, um, colleagues in, in our coalition reached out to the governor's office and the, the representative that they spoke with basically was like, oh, that's hardly any money. Like that money's already accounted for. It's like, um, but where did it's it go? It's only 20 million, yeah. Only yeah. 20 million. It was like, but where did it go, right? And Don't so worry about I it. Yeah. that to say that when folks um, have more um, information and tools and are connected with folks like you, who, are allowed, who kind of get the, no, these are the things that need to happen in order for us to have the kind of mitigative action that transforms us from um, bouncing back to the old way things were, which sucked for a lot of people, to bouncing forward in a way where we're addressing the um, foundational structural process, policy, um, uh, uh, framing, and narrative issues that got us here in the first place. Yeah. Right? Um, that are going to actually reduce the impact of disasters. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, and this is fascinating. I mean, it's like COVID. You don't want just a bounce back return to normal because normal is horrible for a lot of people. I mean, pretty good for me. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I've, I've got a decent job and I'm, 
I'm socially isolating right now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, but for a lot of other people, not so great. And we don't want to just, just turn that recovery into, you know, returning to normal. We want to turn it into something different. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm putting my, my international hat on here. I've, you know, going to all of these countries, they're, they're places with incredibly limited resources, right? Um, you know, the state has, has, has limited resources. Its reach is usually pretty, pretty slim. Um, you know, traveling a couple of days from the capital, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's not much there when it comes to support structures. Um, so almost by, by necessity, you know, these, they call them community-based disaster risk reduction or disaster risk management. These, these sort of community structures mm -hmm. have been put in place um, to mitigate risk, to respond, to recover. Um, they have their problems, you know, it's, it, it, it again, it's, it's maybe a little bit of bootstrapping at the community level. It's placing a lot of responsibility on communities to solve their own problems. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the downside of this, but mm -hmm. You know, the upside, which is what you're talking about, is it provides a voice, um, it provides accountability, and it, it, it provides a way for, you know, communities to, to be heard and, and real issues to be sort of, sort of discussed. Um, so, I mean, some, and, it, and it's really interesting, right? Like, uh, I was in, 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 in Haiti after, after the earthquake, um, went in and was chatting with a lot of Haitians about, you know what they what they want, what they need, and what sort of mitigation strategies should be put in place to reduce risk. And you know, I mean, the earthquake it killed two hundred thousand people, um, pretty devastating. Uh, but but what they were saying is that no, it's not it's not the earthquakes that we're worried about. That that was a one off. Um, you know that happens every once in a while. We're we're dealing with the daily disasters of you know, of poverty, of, you know, lack of clean drinking water, um, and maybe some of the longer term or, or the re more repeating ones like, like the, like the hurricanes that happen on a yearly basis. Um, mm -hmm. so it's, you know, I mean, when you, when you actually talk to people and <laughs> get their views, it can be kind of different. The priorities can be kind of different to, you know, what, what an official response structure might, might have. Um, these community groups too, like they, they also, you know, not only do they provide certain resources when it comes to like material benefits of, 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 of mitigation. So, um, you know, support for a flood wall, for instance, um, but also kind of the immaterial stuff that's super important um, in, in a time of crisis. So, you know, it's FEMA is a big bureaucracy and um <laughs> really? works, yeah and it, it it works it works as a big bureaucracy and it it tries to distribute funds and um you know move the rebuilding process forward what it doesn't provide is emotional support for populations who are you know going through something that's 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 pretty traumatic um community groups you know they, they operate at a smaller level often comprised of, of, of members of that community they can move a bit slower and they can think a bit more beyond just kind of the material needs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, these, these, these strategies, this community-based approach, it's not perfect. Um, and it can definitely be dangerous if you do it the wrong way. You know, you can place too much responsibility on communities. Um, right. In absence of the whole government infrastructure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, and, and you, you got to, um, it, it, which brings this, this place of like the, on the spectrum, right. In an ideal world, um, our government at the federal state and local level, um, and, uh, particularly at the state and local level would be partnering with communities to do this kind of thinking yeah. and work, um, together, right. Because yeah. government can't do it alone. Communities can't do it alone. And I'll add in the private sector, both for-profit and non-profit like that all of us um, have a different responsibilities and in the most cases communities are not part of governance in how we yeah. think about the decisions totally. that are made yep um, and so when we talk about voice and choice in um, in this context um, making sure that um, communities are um, are aren't just at the table right because that's an illusion and and i know that's what a lot of folks that's the language a lot of folks use want to be at the table but the reality is if it you can be at the table and they can just ignore you i've watched it yeah. working with government, right? or they'll consult you they'll they'll get your your views exactly. say say you think that water and sanitation is important they'll get your views when the decision gets made it's somebody else is making the decision right I see that. I mean, that's the other problem. It's it's the devil's in the detail with this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know it's it's who has decision making authority and power, um, and whose voices are heard in that stage too. Exactly, mm -hmm. and and um, and so for the in an ideal world, we'd be at that higher end of community engagement and partnership. Yeah, where where we're not just consulted. You know, here's what we decided. Don't you love it? But that we would be um, having conversations right from the beginning. Let's talk about the problem we're actually trying to solve for and the dynamics of it so that we're clear and we have all the context. And I've been yeah. folks who have watched before know that I always talk about the content experts and the context experts and that community members are the context experts, not just the organizations that we're comfortable with that engage with communities, um, but the ac actual people in communities on the ground closest to the work who are filling the gaps that everyone is leaving, um, that that they are part of how we frame the problem. They're part of how we think about what the trade-offs are because there's always burdens um, and benefits mm -hmm. associated with the decisions we make on a, from a policy perspective um, or any perspective for that matter. Um, and how do we navigate all the way through from engagement all the way through to implementation? And that as part of implementation, um, we're making sure that those benefits that come out of this work also benefit the community, right? So yeah. this idea of um, this idea of um, uh, community members being able to um, uh, to weigh in in meaningful ways about um, the decisions, but also um, if we're spending money to rebuild, how do we make sure that all the contractors that we're paying like aren't from people from outside the community that we're actually investing the money in the community yeah. that we're working, yeah. right? Well, and it's I mean it's I it's also super hard to do, um, and there's some very sort of practical issues that make it really challenging right like like differences in scale i mean fema is is huge and community groups are tiny and you know how do you how do you work with these hundreds of tiny little groups um there's like emergence issues uh, after every disaster mm. new community groups pop up to provide those essential services when the government is unable or unwilling to do that um 
you know, you can, you can partner with the group beforehand. So when the crisis hits, you know who to talk to and you can, you can hit the ground running um, with these emergent groups. It's really hard and it's hard keeping track of them. Um, there's also like accountability issues of like, you know, um, I don't know, FEMA needs an appropriate sort of governance regulatory structure. You know, you need to have oversight and all that stuff. Um, a lot of these little groups don't have those, those, those like systems in place um, to interface with, with FEMA. Um, the thing is, it's not, it's not on them. It's not on the community groups to figure this out. It's on, it's on the FEMA. organization. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we also know that the state and local government, like it's not like FEMA just jumps to the community. Yeah. 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 So state and local government play a role in making sure that they're building those relationships before FEMA ever shows up, because yeah. that is supposed to be the the kind of <clears throat> the the connecting point for FEMA and what's happening on the ground, even yeah. when things are really, really, really bad. And what I've seen, um, especially during COVID-19, is um, there. there's also, um, I think, an opportunity for us to invest in the kind of um, civic and community infrastructure that because it has not been invested in in mm -hmm. communities mm -hmm. um, so that those touch points can be um, uh, facilitated in meaningful ways that, mm -hmm. that um, in us in communities are coordinating with each other so that if I have my kind of small non nonprofit, even if we don't have a 501c3, we're connected with other groups and who do have a 501c3. And we're all going to collaborate in order to do this work together. Yeah. And we're going to have a fiscal sponsor, right? Like th these things are so um, like from a practical perspective, like we can work through them. Um, the challenge is, you know, we need um, we need to have a clear uh, pathway forward. We need the political will. Um, both in the highest levels of government, state and local level, and um, and as communities um, are kind of living, every community in um, the country now kind of living in this disaster um, moment, um, kind of uh, are, are getting exposed to a lot of things that they've never been exposed to before. Like I'm, yeah. I, I've been um, uh, very interested in a lot of the emergency management jargon I'm hearing now that was like just, you know, used to be us in like emergency operations center throwing around these things. Um, right. build, build Back Better was part of Biden's campaign, right? Like yeah. Build Back Better is this this jargon that, that emergency managers always talk about. I can't believe it made, yeah. And so, um, and then, um, as we start to wind down, I do want to mention um, this whole piece around incident management, incident command. Um, you brought that up. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in kind of um, uh, what your, um, if you could explain what that is and what the opportunities you see there are. Sure. Yeah. Um, this is a pretty heady wind down question, but incident incident management is the systems that you put in place, um, an organization or state, <clears throat> local territory, whatever, puts in place when there is an incident. Um, that incident can be something like a natural hazard, mm. um, like a hurricane, it could also be something like COVID, or it can be something like a big sporting event that you know, is basically overwhelming the current systems that you have, the current structures mm. that you have. Um, incident management is basically there to 
coordinate resources and ensure that 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 things are distributed appropriately, um, and that as a situation evolves or change changes, you can you can respond to it. Um, so so right now there's all of these health departments around the country setting up in, that have incident management teams for for COVID nineteen. Um, that's how they're they're sort of coordinating this and managing this. Um, in it it's. It, I, maybe we can maybe nerd out about this a little bit more later, but um, there, there's some really interesting stuff associated with incident management. First, incident management is getting applied to a wider and wider array of incidents, uh, not just hurricanes and not just wildfires where it sort of originated, but you know I'm seeing it used for homelessness. I'm seeing it used for the southern border opioid crisis, COVID, um, all of these atypical hazards. Um, and my theory is that the systems that we have currently are so complex that they are, you know, they're very efficient, but they're constantly breaking down. And um, so incident management is kind of emerging as this way of dealing with ossified bureaucratic systems that aren't necessarily working in today's world. Um, mm -hmm. The second part, and this, this ties much more into what we've been discussing is incident management is designed as uh, a multi-organizational system that anyone can and should link in with who's involved in response. Um, in reality, it's not. It's, you need to know the sort of technical language of incident management, how an incident command structure is structured, who you should interface with, and you need to practice that and train it on a regular basis. Um, so, I mean, even health departments that don't deal with disasters all the time, like a fire department, they're often not confident with incident management systems. Um, emergent groups, that's even harder. Like these, these little community-based organizations, NGOs, um, have a very hard time with, with interfacing with these systems. And mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of view that as the big next step and the big sort of, sort of frontier for improving response, um, figuring out how to make those systems accessible and useful for these emergent responders. Thank you for that, Erin. Um, and I wanted to um, bring that up before we wrapped up. I and mean, there's one question, one more question from um, uh, one of our viewers uh, that I'm gonna pose to you for us to land with. Mm. Um, so one of the examples I'll give is um, in a previous life when I was the director of public health preparedness for the Boston Public Health Commission, um, we redesigned our incident command system to make it a little bit easier to understand and navigate. Um, we, after we built out our community resilience program as part of our overall office, one of the um, uh, areas of work that our office did, we actually ended up creating um, a whole community resilience section um, of, hmm. of the work that we were doing back in the day. And then we used to create um, our situation reports, which are kind of like the summary of for this operational period, what are the priorities, what's happened, what's been done about it, and what's coming up next. Um, we used to create a sanitized version of that and give that to our community partners. Hmm. Uh, and so, so there are so many um, ways that we can kind of connect the dots in really powerful ways. And the last thing I'll say is um, on this front is that um, we've also, as All Aces, done some work with um, folks on thinking about what does it mean to embed racial equity, social justice into the incident command structure 
right? Like, how do you have a role that is explicitly at the decision-making level so that when the, when those section chiefs go into behind closed doors and make decisions for the next operational period, that there's someone in that room who other folks in the, in the command center have gone to with information that says, hey, here's the context of what's happening in communities. Hey, don't forget these things that that person isn't responsible for knowing all that stuff, but is the person that folks know they can go to. So that when we go into the, this behind these closed doors and make these decisions, which is a whole other piece of structural change that needs to happen. But when we do go behind the closed doors that, um, <clears throat> to make these decisions, someone is there who has decision-making power to be able to inform the conversation and challenge the group think that usually happens because people are exhausted and people are just trying to get through the day. Um, so, I love that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that and see if, see if I can run with that a little bit. You know, like yeah, like we have we have logistics, you know, we have public information officers, we have all of these other roles that ensure stuff gets done. A vulnerability or an equity officer would be really useful for getting people to think about this stuff and making sure that it's it's sort of mainstreamed in the incident response because it falls in the cracks. I mean, you, you know, I, th I think we're, we're sort of walking with incident management right now. It still is kind of this thing that's a little bit new and we're just learning how to, how to do it. You know, I, yeah. Next steps are, are really figuring out how to do it for everybody, not just the ones that are sort of easy to reach, um, which is how we're thinking now. It's, you know, Joe public who happens to be of a certain, uh, race and socioeconomic class. Thank you for that, Aaron. And Monir Zam, who is uh, lives in the climate um, uh, mitigation world. Uh, glad you're here, Air uh, Monir. Um, Ask you know if you're familiar with FEMA's um, hazard mitigation program, the BRIC. I know you are. Um, and so, um, from where you sit and what you understand about how it's being approached. Do you think that diversity, equity, and inclusion is included in um, this program? And then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have some familiarity with BRIC. I think one of the things I've been thinking a lot with, with FEMA generally is how they go about making their decisions and when it comes to mitigation itself. Um, and, you know, typically mitigation is, is assessed based on property values. Um, so it structurally favors people who have property and are wealthy. Um, you know, I think, I think reorienting around people rather than property would be quite useful. Um, I know in the UK, for instance, their, their sort of flood mitigation ratings, they assign an extra 25% weight. Um, I think it's 25, 25%, it might be 50. I, I don't, quite remember, uh, but they, they assign an extra weight for um, lower economic classes in recognition that, you know, if you are poor, you're going to have a much harder time recovering from a disaster. So you should, and it's going to hurt a lot more. So you lose a buck and you're poor, hurts a lot more than if you lose a buck and you're Bill Gates. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's some sort of simple things that can be done with with some of those metrics that could really help moving, you know, move, move decisions over and make them a little bit more equitable. And on that note, um, what I will say is that um, I know that there are, there were, there were some folks who were in, in FEMA, particularly FIMA, which is 
What does pharma stand for again? Do you remember? Federal insurance. Is it mitigate insurance mitigation agency? An agency. It's like an agency. Yeah. Agency. It's weird. Um, but um, uh, so FIMA, uh, the Federal Insurance Mitigation Agency within FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is the, the, the part of the organization that BRIC comes out of. And I know that some of the folks have um, tried to work um, as hard as they can in the current political climate to embed um, considerations around equity, but understanding the current political climate, right? That we have a president who is who has issued an executive order telling all federal agencies that they cannot do um, uh, racial equity, social justice workshops that use certain framing or words um, and have, have since also um, uh, stood up these, these quasi um, committees that uh, employees uh, of different federal departments can then complain to if they feel like their agency um, may have um, participated in something that made them uncomfortable. All of that to say um, that I think um, that it impacted the ability of this to be as um, equitable as it could have been um, explicitly, right? Because we know that when programs are not explicitly saying, we're worried about people of color, we're worried about poor people, we're worried about these very specific populations, um, it defaults to whatever is easiest and most comfortable for folks who are then on the receiving end of the money. Um, so thank you for that question, Monir. I want to say thank you to all of our um, viewers tonight. Thank you for folks who have been posting um, and sharing their thoughts with us. Thank you, um, Aaron, for taking time out of your day in order to be here with us. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your thoughtfulness, all of your hard work over the years. And I definitely will um, be following up with you because I think we have some um, good trouble to start. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do that. And thank you so much for just just inviting me and, and chatting. I, I you know I, I feel like this work can be pretty hard sometimes and it's 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 really good to have a conversation and to kind of process some of that stuff. So um, yeah, thanks thanks again for for the invite. It was great. Thank you. And so you all know as always I'm sending lots of love, hope and action to each and every one of you. You've been listening to Intentionally Act Live from our website, intentionallyact.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Submit your stories and questions for future episodes by emailing us at info at Until next time.